and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man who would have finished that Raheem Sterling chance. His name is Joe Larry. Hello, Joe. I, oh man, you'd have to, Taylor has seen me play soccer. Daryl, yeah. you have not. Um, he gave you a positive scouting report. He was very <laughs> gracious. Um, I, I'd like to say I would have finished it. We're going to go with yes. I'm going to put on that air of false confidence. There we go. I like it. I like it. I, I was thinking about this for myself because I'm always interested in this idea of people being like, oh, I would have finished that or my grand would have finished that or that kind of thing. <laughs> um, I think I would have finished it. I don't think I would have made the run to the back post in the same clever way that Raheem did. That's a good way to put it. I think I, I wouldn't have made the run. I probably would have finished it, but I'm quite confident my grandma would not have finished it. <laughs> my grandma wouldn't because she's known more for her defending. Um, <laughs> all right, let's get, let's get to this game. If people didn't see it, it is one of the surprises of the Champions League quarterfinals. Leon beat Manchester City 3-1. We're going to talk about how Leon did it, what they did right, maybe what Man City did wrong, like including Sterling's miss. Um, and we'll get into analysing the goals. I think the first thing to go with, though, Joe, is the... Um, it's the narrative that seems to be everywhere. The idea that Pep Guardiola, Man City coach, overthought this game and overcomplicated his tactics um, as some people think that he always does for the big, big games in the Champions League. Do you agree or disagree with that idea? I'm a little bit hesitant to follow along with that narrative. I, I, number one, because I don't think the tactics were particularly complicated from Manchester City. Yeah. Yes, the formation was different and that is is potentially the biggest area that we need to kind of dig into as to why maybe he would decide to go a three at the back for this game. Yeah. But the tactics weren't complicated. It wasn't this sort of Pep Guardiola galaxy brain overthinking moment. I think he tried to do things that would neutralize Leon's advantages, give him better chances to create chances and to minimize chances against Leon's counterattacks. It didn't work, or at least it didn't work entirely in the way he would have wanted. But I'm not sure I'm all the way into the idea that this is just another disaster, a, yeah. a tactical disaster from Pep Guardiola. I'm with you. I think there was a semi-final. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I might be getting the ears confused. But I think there was a semi-final where Guardiola's coaching Bayern Munich against a very good Barcelona team in a Champions League semi-final or later round match. And he goes with a very sort of high press, everybody man mark, really take the risks and step up high system. And I think that was maybe overthinking because he paid for it. Barcelona sort of uh, de destroyed that destroyed that system. But I think you're right. That there's there's nothing like that in this Manchester City thing. There's just we went with a back three instead of the usual four three three. And it's not that rare for City to go with a back three, right? It's happened many many times in the Premier League this this season. Um, it, so you you said there might be reasons why he did this um, in response to what Leon would do in. Is it as simple as like Leon counterattack? with a lot of pace through guys like uh, Memphis. Um, and, you know, having the, the three at the back gives them an extra guy. Is it, is it something that simple or is it something a little deeper than that? That's part of what I was thinking of. You have three center backs at the back versus Depay and versus, you know, the rest of Lyon's counterattacking force. Having an extra number, there's a good thing, right? But then also, when you have the ball, if you're playing with three center backs against the front two for Lyon, that's a 3v2 advantage. You I expect, or, or I expected when I saw the lineups on paper, that that would give Manchester City a chance to work the ball between their three center backs, have one of them stride forward into the attack, then you get numbers into midfield, you have an overload in that area, and then you can really go in the final third. That on paper made sense to me. It's not yeah. really what we saw, though. I think we saw one time, in the first half at least, I'm confident it was about one time, 
Garcia strides forward on the ball and creates something moving forward from the back with that numerical advantage that City had. So on paper, I think there's validity to it. It just didn't quite turn out that way. So why didn't it turn out that way? It's got to be something that Leon were doing, which was very effective. And I noticed a few things and I've got like, you know, my own little list of what I liked about Leon. But did you see anything specific that prevented Man City doing what they wanted to do? Yeah, I thought one thing Leon did very well, and this is, a, I guess, a general defensive principle for them. They seem to defend in a very man-oriented way. Mm. Like, they would, they would have guys shadowing Manchester City players. Depay shadowed Rodri for much of this game, and they had their, their three center backs for Leon would shadow Gabriel Jesus. They would shadow Raheem Sterling. They would shadow Kevin De Bruyne, so that as those attacking players for Manchester City tried to drop back and get on the ball to create separation for themselves... They couldn't create that separation. They had a defender on their back. They couldn't breathe. They couldn't turn. That means they have to. That means Manchester City have to play the ball back, and then they can't really get in behind a whole lot. Although, the one time that I think they they turned the tables on Lyon resulted in the goal. Yeah, in the second half. Yeah, absolutely. But that's after Man City have changed shape, right? That's when they're exactly. going to. Uh, I want to call it a four-two-three-one, more or less, is what they uh, what they end up going with. A, a big thing I noticed, um, especially in the first half. Man City tried many, many, many times to have one of those um, get to the end line and cut it back. It's basically the, the Man City goal. You know what I'm talking about? I'm sure yeah. the listeners will know what I'm talking about. It's how they score eventually with De Bruyne's sort of late arriving run from midfield. But in the first half, I noticed they, they got to the end line a lot. I'm picturing Sterling doing it. Cut it back. But then essentially, Leon just always had bodies in the box to make sure that it never found the feet of a Manchester City player. And it actually, this is a weird reference, but it reminded me of my own Wolverhampton Wanderers team, the way there are always three centre-backs, nice and tight in the box, and some midfielders there. So any low balls into the box, there are just numbers and bodies, and someone a defender's going to get their foot to it first. Leon did such a great job, I thought, in this game of having those numbers in dangerous areas. That's what Manchester City want to do. They want to get numbers into the outside of the box or the, the channel just outside the box in yeah. the attacking half. But Leon, but Leon would allow them to get into that space or they would get broken down so that Manchester City did get into that space with that classic pattern that Man City do where they get the ball to the wing back. Then whoever's in that half space, if it's Raheem Sterling or Kevin De Bruyne, make that kind of inside out run to get on the ball just outside the center back. Leon were getting broken in that area. But they had numbers back to deal with low crosses, to deal with cutbacks, to deal with dribbling in the box. That it almost wasn't as big of a problem as it as it could have been for Manchester City. Leon did a really good job. I agree with you, Daryl, with dealing with those moments. Let's get it down to an individual player level as well. Was there a Leon player that particularly impressed you today? Oh man, I think this is not necessarily as much on the defensive side of things for them. More looking at their offensive game. Yeah, but our. Yes. The way that he broke out of counter pressure in the first half, I have a couple different moments in my mind, but there's one specifically. He's on the left side of the field, Leon just win the ball back, and two or three guys from Manchester City come to pressure him to counter press, to win the ball back so that they can get back into their attacking structure. Auer just sort of dribbles through them, takes a couple of clean touches, breaks the ball into the middle of the p- middle of the field. I think Depay then pulls out some sort of flick and, and Leon are off to the races at that point. But his ability on the ball was so nice in this game. I mean, he's super involved in the uh, two of the three Leon goals, right? I think he has a nice ball through for the uh, the really important second goal in the 79th minute. Um, and he has the shot that's saved uh, in the 87th minute for Dembele to score the rebound. So he contributed plenty to the attack, but he was also part of that really impressive uh, Leon 
midfield three. I'm, I'm going to say OR is the best player in the world with a ratio of four to one syllables to consonants. In <laughs> it's a narrow category, I'm but he's it. the world leader. He's the absolute world leader. <laughs> That's <laughs> I brilliant. Do, I do want to talk about that midfield three then. Um, yeah, so OR, Gumarish and uh, Kakere, who's a player I was not familiar with. I'm going to assume Kakere is like the... Uh, Next in line now, Lucas Toussaint is is in Berlin. Uh, is it her to Berlin? I thought that midfield three was magnificent at always keeping the uh, uh, like a defensive shield in front that Manchester City couldn't get through. And then I, the thing I really liked that I noticed is if Man City advanced uh, and pushed Leon a little deeper, then Akambi or Depay would come and join them and form a midfield four, which made it even harder for Manchester City. It was so fluid for Lyon in that regard. They yeah. had they had numbers moving around, blocking off passing angles. Even just thinking about where Kevin De Bruyne got on the ball before before Pep had to change the shape when when Riyad Mahrez came on to make it into a four three into a four three two one when De Bruyne moves inside to that number ten spot. Yeah, the fact that De Bruyne was receiving the ball wide consistently instead of in the middle of the field. Huge props to Lyon's midfield and forward line for for forcing him wide and making it so that he couldn't pick up the ball. They shielded the they shielded him away from the ball so that yeah. he couldn't get it like in no, those dangerous central no areas. Space, no space for you here. Go look over there. Exactly. So they they pushed him out wide where he had some success getting on the ball in those wider half space areas. But the way Lyon's midfield moved and tracked runners and stayed compact and shifted horizontally, stepped high when they needed to, dropped back when it was time to to play a little deeper. All of those things, I thought they did really, really well in most of the moments in the first half and, and in the second half. So we, we sort of answered the Pep overthinking it question. We mostly both came down on the side of no, because if you look at the bigger context of his career, you know, there's a bit of tinkering here and there anyway. And this shape kind of made sense, right? Um, I would also argue there is a version of this game that Manchester City win. There's a, maybe a little, a little bit of... Um, not look about Leon taking the lead, but it was it wasn't as if it always looked like Leon were going to go ahead in this game. And it also, from when Man City equalised, it kind of looked like oh, this is this is going to be a classic Man City comeback as well. It, it felt like in the middle of the second half, after City get their goal, which is lovely by the way, and I know we'll talk about it. But after City get the goal, and even a little bit before that as well, Kevin De Bruyne starts to get on the ball in those central spaces, and they start to stretch the game a little bit. And then you get the Sterling chance a little bit later in the in that half. It did feel like there's a very real there's a very real timeline where Manchester City win this game. And I haven't gotten a chance to look at the expected goals. Not that that is everything from a single match, but I would be a little bit surprised if Manchester City didn't have at least close if they in, if they weren't way ahead in the XG in this game. That feels right based on the chances we saw. I'm thinking my mind's instantly going to like the Kyle Walker header and, and all sorts of other chances that Man City have. And for Leon, you can't name as many chances, right? There's at least three, but I can't think of too many more. Yeah, and, and a couple <laughs> of Leon's chances are from, from further away, right? From outside the box, which yes. XG doesn't like too much anyway. Yeah. Um, and before we move on to talk about the goals, is there anything else, uh, either big picture tactical or specific player related that you'd like to uh, you'd like to get into i just think this is and maybe this is rehashing i just think so much credit deserves to go to leon i don't want i don't want to be caught up in the narrative that manchester city blew it and and, and have it under the perspective of we just had barcelona lose eight to two yeah. recently and now manchester city come in and they're they're sort of outdone and and what's you know it's all their fault and all of those things and yes i don't think manchester city moved the ball very well in possession there was lots of room for improvement there 
But man, Lyon played so well in this game for the vast majority of the 90-plus minutes. And I think I think they deserve so much credit for this performance. And and maybe something that they're going to be able to potentially duplicate in in the semifinal round. So it'll be against Bayern Munich, right? So that should be that should be very interesting. Um, it's it, going to be difficult. If people want just like a, a broad overview of what it is that Leon do, because I know we, we've touched on it here and there, but it's not been like a, we haven't delivered a consistent message about what Leon do. It's basically good defensive structure and really devastating counters. Is that fair to say? Like, and good defensive structure without dropping too deep. It's like, make it, make it hard for you to progress. Then they have a plan if you do progress, which is like to fall back into the, the 5-4-1. But then they just have a lot of pace and a lot of uh, like really smart directness to hurt you on the counter. Is that a fair summary? Is there anything you'd add to that? No, I think that's a really good summary. Just thinking about the goals as an overview before we get into them. I went back and looked at the three goals and, and sort of the build-ups to them. They, they attack effectively into space so well on the counterattack. The yes. first goal, it's a quick move down the left side. The second goal, it's two passes to play Dembele in behind. The third goal, it's a goal kick, win the ball in the attacking half, and then go. Right, yeah. Those moments, I think, all truly do embody how Lyon can play when they're up against a team like Manchester City, when they're up against or they're going to be up against a team like Bayern Munich. Lyon do that really well. All right, before we get into the goals, Joe, let's take a quick break for a word from our advertiser. And we're back and we're going to talk some goals. All right, Joe, the, the first goal, the first goal is scored for Leon in the 24th minute by Maxwell Cornet is how I'm pronouncing this. That feel right? Uh, that feels Maxwell great. Cornet, who actually, he's, he's a player that I was really impressed with because I always thought of him or I do think of him as a striker essentially right maybe a wide left striker I don't really think of him as a left wing back but that's the job he did in this entire game and managed to get on the score sheet as well yeah he was up and down that left side effectively when Leon were out on the counter-attack which happened a decent number of times all told in this match he was effective in that spot in a little bit of a deeper role than I also think of him I think of him as a more of a left-sided attacker Although maybe that's just what a wingback is nowadays. But there are times, I think because of the nature of this game and because of who Leon were playing, there were times when he was full left back, as in he's the left yeah. back in a back five. Um, I'm guessing if he plays this role for Leon in League 1, it, it, is maybe, it maybe is more of a left-sided attacking role with minimal defending. So I was impressed that he, can, uh, he could put the defensive work in um, when required. For this goal, I was, I was thinking about what you said uh, before the break, Joe. You, you mentioned that... Uh, Two of the goals were, the final two goals are like a counter-attack, right? And the third goal is some, you know, a quick direct play. The, or efficient play, I guess you could call it, right? The, the big thing I notice is it's almost the one time that Manchester City, it seemed like they got the pressure wrong and just allowed Leon a little too much time on the ball. Because when Marcel, the left centre-back, picks out that pass in behind the defence, he really has no pressure on him at all. So I think if you give Leon a little bit of time, they can do something devastating when they put the ball in behind you. That's something I've been thinking about. This is the first non-Major League Soccer game I've watched really <laughs> you know, closely yeah. in at least a month, if not a little yeah. bit longer. Do you, do, you keep thinking... calling it, do you keep calling it Champions League is back? <laughs> yes, yes. This is the Champions League is back tournament. I mean, it kind of is, but yeah, not right? branded that way. <laughs> I keep thinking about in that context, right? Like in Major League Soccer, teams really aren't good in all phases of play. Right? You might be really good at sitting deep and then counterattacking, or you might be really good at having the ball and counterpressing. It's rare to find a team, and this doesn't just speak to Major League Soccer, but I guess this speaks to global soccer, 
it's hard to be a team that's good at playing without the ball, counterattacking, yeah. playing with the ball, and counterpressing. Lyon kind of came close to doing things well in all four phases. This goal doesn't come from, from them winning the ball in their block and going. It comes from build-up. They take advantage. I think it's Kevin De Bruyne who's trying yeah. to pressure on that side for Manchester City. But I believe, if I'm remembering it correctly, I believe that Lyon have him in a bit of a 2v1. He can't pressure the ball effectively, and then Lyon just work it up their left side. It's, yep. it's nice possession. Yeah, it really, really, really is. And it's a bad offside line for Manchester City. <laughs> I think yeah. I think part of the the problem sometimes of having a back five. This is a really basic thing, but I just think it's harder to hold an offside line with five people instead of four people because it's just one extra guy who has to be in sync. When when uh, when we were planning this show to peel back the curtain a little bit, Daryl sort of framed part of what we were going to talk about as what Manchester City did wrong. And the first thing I wrote down underneath that category in my notes was that the, maybe they didn't buy Kyle Walker a neck massage before this game. <laughs> Because he is, he is the problem, right, in this offside yeah. line. He is the one who is staying deeper and allowing the run in behind the line from Akambi. Kyle Walker is just sort of staring at Cornet, yep. and he doesn't swivel his head, and he doesn't really seem to know what's going on within that elongated back five. Yeah, he's just very focused on Cornet's run up the left and not on the rest of his line, right, which you'd have to look across the field to, uh, to, see, to see where they are. And that's, that's, and that's why Akambi's onside. And sorry to interrupt, Daryl. That's that's great if you're playing for uh, for Atalanta, maybe, or for the San Jose <laughs> Earthquakes to keep it a little closer to where I live. Oh, ma- very man responsible. Yeah, yeah, and you're responsible for marking man to man, and you're responsible if you're Kyle Walker as the right sided defender for marking the opposing team's left sided attacker. But that's not what Pep Guardiola wanted from Mm-mm. his team in this game, and that is a real problem if you're Kyle Walker and if you're Manchester City giving up this goal. The very, very small upside here is it does give Eric Garcia the opportunity to put in his best moment of the game, which is the <laughs> the slight tackle on Akambi as he's just getting through uh, one-on-one with Ederson. But um, that that's definitely uh, uh, too little too early from Eric Garcia in terms of his entire game. And it does it, the ball pops loose, not Garcia's fault, right? Because he puts in that great uh, tackle. That's almost like a, I think of it as like a round the corner tackle where he manages to loop his leg around. Great challenge on Akambi, but it pops up to Cornet. And that one of the things I'm really impressed with is the the confidence of Cornet's finish here because mm. there is not a lot of goal to aim at, and he hits it first time. He does. He takes advantage of Ederson being a little bit out of out of the goal. He is definitely out of the goal. Maybe a little bit out of position. I was gonna say. But I'm not sure I know enough about goalkeeping to make that claim accurately. Yeah. It's a confident finish from Cornet. One other, one other thing, if you'll permit me to add on Good. this goal, yeah. Daryl. I just talked about Kyle Walker you know, being the right fit in this moment as he's trying to, to mark Cornet. It being the right fit for a man-marking scheme. But he's not because he doesn't track Cornet's well, run true. in the yeah. attacking half. He stares at him. And then the ball gets played in over the top. It can be beats, um, you know, it beats and, and breaks through the middle of Manchester City's defense. And then Kyle Walker just sort of stands around and walks a little bit, but he doesn't track the person who he's made his own personal responsibility. He just sort of turns off in that moment. And that is what allows Cornet to be free to take the shot in the first place. Do you, do you have any... Oh, I haven't gone back and watched this. Do you have any idea why Walker doesn't go with Cornet? How does he go from so very focused to Cornet having a basically um, a no-pressure... Well, well, I mean, not no pressure because it's a very narrow uh, thing he's aiming at, but no pressure from a Man City player shot at goal. I don't know for sure, but it seems like and if I'm putting myself in his head, I guess I could be thinking now the ball's in the middle of the field and they're likely going to break through. 
the odds of my man, who, the guy who I've made my man, going in and getting the ball when it seems like this guy's through on goal are pretty low. And so I'm just going to sort of sit back and watch and see what happens. I, I don't know if that's what Kyle Walker's thinking or doing, but I think he just turns off a little bit and assumes that the play is in the middle of the field and that's no longer his responsibility. Ooh. All right, so Leon go in 1-0 up at half time. Um, Man City don't change shape for the start of the second half, right? It's more like, I want to say like the 57th minute or so is when Guardiola finally decides. I want to say it's Fernandinho comes out of the back three, Riyad Mahrez comes on, and that's when they go to the to the 4-2-3-1. And then it's only 10 minutes or so later then that Kevin De Bruyne um, scores this equaliser. Oh, it's so good too. The goal is beautiful. It's yeah. It's like what... It's what the first half was crying out for. It's the movement that the first half was crying out for. When, when you think about how Lyon were shadowing Manchester City's attackers, in this, in this moment, it's Mahrez who starts to drop in, yeah. and he's got a player on his back. And he's, he's weirdly bunched up right next to Sterling. Yeah, the he's drifted over, right, funky. to the left. Because isn't Mahrez yeah. supposed to be wide right? Yeah, it was Mahrez on the right and Sterling on the left. And they were in the same, I don't know, five-yard space at this point in time. But it works out because as Mahrez drops in, Sterling sees that and sees that the Lyon defender has gone with Mahrez. Sterling peels off and breaks in behind the back line, gets into that Manchester City space, the Manchester City zone, as I, as I, I didn't come up with that, but as I call it, he gets into that space and takes advantage of probably the biggest exploitable thing with how Lyon were defending, and that just hadn't happened a whole lot in the game up to this point. So does that explain why Kevin De Bruyne is able to make that late run unmarked? Because I, I can't picture anyone arriving at the top of the box unmarked um, against that Leon defence in the first half. And yet De Bruyne, he has the entire Leon midfield behind him and the entire Leon defence way, way ahead of him. So he's got the space to just like stroll or stride to the top of the box and meet that Sterling cutback. That's right. I mean, to me, that seems right because all of Leon are focused on Sterling because they hadn't had someone break into space behind them yeah. when their line was that high. I see, yeah, yeah. In so the first, first half, panic. yeah, in the first half, it had been, you know, Manchester City attacking in the final third, and they do that pattern where they have the guy in the half space drift wide and get outside the center back. The result of this is the same, but there's more space for Manchester City to attack in. That means that Leon have to cover more ground and have to give a little bit more attention to Raheem Sterling in the box. And Kevin De Bruyne times it so well. He's walking. Daryl, he's walking when the ball is played over the top. He's just hanging out, being patient. And then as Sterling starts to catch up to the ball in behind the back line, then he starts to jog, then he starts to sprint and gets to the top of the box. And it's, oh, it's so beautiful. So I want to revisit this Pep overthinking it thing because it sounds like what we're saying is if they'd gone with the 4-2-3-1 or a 4-3-3, that it, it's kind of working here, right? So maybe it would have worked if they played it for 90 minutes. Yeah, and maybe one thing we didn't talk about in that conversation, in the Pep overthinking conversation, is, or at least we didn't talk about it with any detail, it's difficult to change a shape. At least I, I think it would be challenging to change from a traditional shape that you're playing all the time to a shape that you're not as familiar with, or at least not in, in bigger moments like this. And so maybe that return to a more comfortable comfortable setup was really helpful. Or maybe it's just that the players finally sort of understood how to pull defenders out of position and exploit yeah. space. I, I don't know, honestly. It, yeah, it, honestly, it may not be that the shape is what caused Leon to be pulled out of shape. That Man City's shape isn't the thing <laughs> that pulled Leon apart, right? It's just that maybe uh, Mares and Sterling managed to overload that one side for the first time and uh, get Leon pedaling backwards. Um, because yeah. you could also, the counter argument is that, but it's in that it's in that four two three one shape that Man City concede the next two goals. <laughs> Right, exactly. 
Um, and maybe also if we, we talked earlier about like the reason for having a back three, um, one is to have a 3v2 uh, when you're in possession, but also a 3v2 when you're defending counterattacks, right? And these next two goals are Leon counterattacks, um, starting with uh, Dembele's goal. Dembele comes off the bench to replace uh, Memphis, which it was I was kind of surprised at the time. I'm like, oh, Memphis is coming off. That's a weird move. And you see Dembele coming on and think, oh, okay, that's that's trouble for Man City. <laughs> um, <laughs> And he's, he scores in the in the 79th minute. And this is a classic counter-attack, right? It's like a Laporte, I want to say. Yeah, Laporte, a Man City centre-back, trying to pass a ball into midfield. It's cut out one quick pass to our friend uh, with the syllables, our, um, <laughs> and, then, and then they're in behind again. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm now going to pretend that I am tight with ORN. I'm going to call him <laughs> my friend with the syllables. It's it's such a classic counter-attack. And it's more, even even more than that, I think of it as a classic goal that if you're not careful and you play like Manchester City, that you're always at risk of giving up. Yeah. You turn the ball over. It's, it's a misconnected pass from Laporte. He, he gives the ball away in midfield. Then he tries to track back, and Leon at this point smell blood in the water. They realize the space is behind the back line. They have runners positioned properly to take advantage of that space, to get in behind. It's a nice dummy from Akambi who gets the ball or allows the ball to roll through to Dembele. And then he's in space. He's in tons of space behind the Manchester City defensive line. And it's sort of similar. It's, it's different, but it's sort of similar to the first goal from Leon. In, the, in that, there's tons of space behind Manchester City's defense, and they take advantage of it. And there's also an offside mistake, I guess, right? You could call it. Yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest with you, that I understand how offside works in this instance <laughs> and who impacted the play and who didn't and the foul or not a foul and what even VAR was looking at. So, uh, Daryl, your thoughts on that? I think, so, Le, is it Laporte's uh, tracking back in, mm-hmm. it, is sticking with Dembele, right? Have I got this right? Yep. Yeah. Yep, that's correct, um, yeah. And there's there's also the idea that Akambe would have been in an offside position if he touched the ball, right? So when he steps over it. And there is a weird thing where he, he doesn't make a play on the ball, but it is really influential in what happens because it it definitely fools a couple of people, right? For the ball to for the ball to go through his legs. So, and then there's also the extra complicating factor, which isn't an offside thing, of whether Dembele actually fouls Laporte because Laporte goes down in a heap. Mm-hmm. There's so many elements of this, and I think that's why I'm confused. Like to, for listeners, I understand the basic concept of offside. I want to make that <laughs> make that clear. Otherwise, maybe you shouldn't be listening to anything that I'm saying. But there are so many different elements, and thank you for going through those, Daryl. There are so many different layers to this that I reround it maybe ten times and even asked a number of different people. And just from what you could read on Twitter, some people said yes, it's definitely offside, and other people said no, it's obviously not offside. And I, I, I don't know where I fall. So I, th- I think we can just say if if a Kambe um the, basically the referees have i guess the best thing to do is not to argue with what it should be but maybe argue how the referees interpreted it hmm. uh, and they interpreted it as a combe not making a play by stepping over it yeah is that the, yeah. that's Which, the most simple explanation right yeah and i'm not that's entirely sure razor. i agree with Occam's that line of explanation yeah i'm not entirely sure i would have made the same decision if i was a referee but i'm also not a referee i'm sitting here <laughs> not not refereeing games so i guess that's fair and then the other debatable thing is, does Dembele foul Laporte? Because it looks to me like he does maybe catch the heel of his boot, and that's why Laporte goes down. Yeah, none of the angles that I could see of this play were particularly helpful in trying to decide if that's a foul or not. And yeah. so I think at that point, it's probably best to not call it back, right? You you let it go on. They let the play continue in the first place. 
you don't change that for something that at least I couldn't quite tell if he catches him hard, yeah. if he doesn't really catch him at all. Or if, if he falls over his own down. feet, right? It's exactly. possible it's, it's, fell over his own feet. There's too many different explanations here. And I mean, I think for that reason, it's a goal. And what we can say again from a Leon perspective is it looks to me like this is what you can think of as classic Leon in that it's uh, Kakere, the the midfielder intercepting, giving it to Aor and Aor playing a really uh, like perfect through ball and then a bit of cleverness from Akambe and a great finish from Dembele. It seems like that's a good Leon template. I'm 100% with you. That summarized super, super well. Um, so we've already talked about Sterling's miss. That that would have been the equalizer in sort of the 86th, 87th minute. I don't think we can add any extra analysis, really. It's like, it's one part unlucky, one part maybe he leaned back too much. Um, what we can say is that not long after that miss, Leon have the ball in the back of the net to make it 3-1. It's another Dembele goal. It's another Dembele goal and a really unfortunate error, I, I think, from Ederson to direct the shot. So it's a shot from outside the box, I believe from Awar. It is. Again, yeah. involved in this goal. He takes the shot and it's sort of dipping into the right. Ederson's left, but as you're watching the shot, it's going down into the right. If you're, if you're across from Ederson in this example, it's going down to the side. And instead of pushing it to the side, if you're Ederson, instead of you know parrying it out to the side away from the players rushing in on goal, he just sort of bobbles it or parries it back into where everyone is standing. And Dembele's right there. And that's enough in this yeah. goal. That's enough for Leon to get on the end of the ball. It's enough for Dembele to get on the ball and finish. That mistake is, is really tough to swallow. It feels like a rare mistake as well from Edesson. It's not the sort of thing I remember. Th- I, I can remember him doing. Yeah, it's. I mean, he's a great goalkeeper, right? We talk about him with his possession and his ability to ping the ball out of the back in transition to start counterattacks even to find players up the field on goal kicks or things like that. He's also a good shot stopper. He's a good all-around goalkeeper. And when you're Manchester City's goalkeeper, you have to be because you're, you're responsible for stopping transition attacks. You're responsible for dealing with balls in behind the back line and making 1v1 saves. And that just doesn't happen here. I want to highlight once again my friend Kakere because he is the guy. This is number 25 with the uh, um, like sort of to below the ear, <laughs> length hair um <laughs> for those who are watching he's the guy that wins possession to start the move he robs david silver in david silver's last ever manchester city game i think silver's like trying to uh bring down a bouncing ball and kakare just kind of nips in and takes it he sort of like steps in really quickly and he's like nope that's mine and away we go yeah and then he gives it to jeff ryan adelaide who had just come off the bench who does a really nice bit of juggling <laughs> Um, just yeah. over the halfway line. I thought that was such a great thing to come off the bench and do that. Um, and then it's uh, JRA who gives it to, again, our multi-syllabled friend, our for the shot. Once again, quick counter-attack from Leon. Yeah, Leon, Leon played, and I, I feel like I keep saying this and so I'm not going to spend long on this, but they, they were very good in this game at doing what they needed to do to beat Manchester City. Will that be enough to beat Bayern Munich? Oh, boy. No, if you're asking me for a prediction on the spot, this isn't a very specific prediction. This isn't uh, also probably, as a result, probably not wise for me to predict because anything can happen. Yeah. But Bayern Munich has been on fire and and I think will do things enough, will do their own things well enough to beat Lyon, even with Lyon doing the things that they should do to beat Bayern. I absolutely agree with you, but I also would have said the same thing after Leon beat Juventus. And exactly. I would say that, well, they're going up against Manchester City next. I have an email just arrived in the Total Soccer Show inbox um, saying that Taylor and I were a little disrespectful to Leon yesterday by kind of assuming, um, oh, yeah, Man City will probably take care of them. 
Um, well, hopefully so. we've remedied some of that disrespect, potential disrespect in today's episode. I certainly have more respect for Leon. And, and to be honest, it's more based on, I feel like now I have a bit more of an understanding of what they do and why it's so effective. Because uh, part of me really thought, oh, without Lucas Toussaint, they're a weakened team. But looking at, again, looking at their midfield again, it's a, it's a terrifying midfield three to, to go up against. So yeah, a salute to Leon. And genuinely, I can say I'm looking forward to seeing them against Bayern Munich. So that should be a good game on, I want to say, Wednesday next week. Um, anything else to add, Joe, on this game before we, uh, before we move on and talk men's national team and Major League Soccer? I'm I'm good, Daryl. Honestly, I'm I'm good. I think that was a good, concise, but also elaborative bit of analysis. There we go. That's what we that's what we aim for: concise but also elaborate. <laughs> Before we move on, uh, time for a quick word from a Total Soccer Show sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Fubo TV. Joe, if you've been listening to the show, you've heard Taylor and I go on and on about Fubo TV. <laughs> um, it genuinely is. My favorite way to watch soccer. Um, Fubo TV is an over-the-top um, internet TV service. So you can watch it. I've watched it on my laptop today. I've watched it on my iPad. Um, I can watch it on my phone if I'm on the go. And I can watch it on my TV through Apple TV uh, is what I use. You can use Roku or Amazon. You get NBC Sports Network. You get all the Fox Sports channels, all the ESPN channels. Um, T-U-D-N? Uh, yeah, Today N-A is how I think you are supposed to pronounce that. How's your Spanish, Joe? It's not great, um, but it's to the NA, so I it guess is. it's it's decent. Is there is there sort of um, a hidden or a deliberate bit of wordplay with to the NA as well? I've I've seen a couple of people suggest that there is, but I don't understand what it is. Like, and and you've reached the limit of my Spanish ability, <laughs> so I just overhyped myself. All right, let's let's try and work this out together. I think to means you or your. Sure. Yep. And DNA, I think, has some connotation of like sports or something. So I think it's like a pun on your sports. Today, ah, does that make sense? That's clever. I, I honestly, I'd buy that. I all would 100% right. buy that. We're gonna be getting emails. Um, I'll forward <laughs> all the emails correct to me, I'll forward them all to you, Joe. So you'll, you'll get the knowledge as well. Uh, but yeah, this game was also on uh, 2DNA, NA, which is where I, I watched on my laptop. Um, other great things about Fubo the, the DVR 500 hours. Um, I, again, I've nearly filled it, I'm on about 300 plus. And there's the family plan, which three people can share. Um, if you want to sign up, you go to fubo.tv slash TSS and you can get a seven day free trial. If you do that right now, that will get you the uh, the Champions League semifinals next week. Um, you can cancel after seven days or once you've seen how amazing it is, you can commit. Fubo.tv slash TSS. The link will be in the show notes. Thank you, Joe, for participating in the ad read, despite not having any of the ad copy in front of you. <laughs> anytime, Daryl, anytime. <laughs> Oh, you're going to regret that. We're going to be calling you in the middle of ads that we're doing next week. Just to- yeah, I mean, if you want, if you want my my phoned in uh, analysis of, of whatever yeah. the ad read is, I'm happy yeah. to do that. We just want your Spanish language analysis. <laughs> oh boy, oh boy. <laughs> so we asked for questions because I told everybody Joe Larry is coming back on the show. Um, you are now famous and famous in total soccer show circles for being a Major League Soccer and U.S. Men's National Team expert. You are the co-host with Jordan of. MLS assist which covered every single game of the MLS's back tournament which I'm still honestly stunned that you managed to uh, you managed to do that <laughs> I feel like I'm supposed to say I'm not surprised that we could do it but I'm also a little bit stunned um, and, and still recovering but uh, but yeah Jordan and I had a ton of fun and and some sleepless nights but a lot of fun yes going through and covering that tournament and just while we're talking MLS assist do you have um, anything you can share with listeners about uh, what's going on going forward because you know the MLS is back is also MLS regular season is back soon right 
The games are coming thick and fast starting on Thursday, August 20th. There'll be a lot of games pretty much, not nonstop, but a lot of games heavy in the, the later stages of the weeks. Our plan, and Jordan and I need to talk about this a little bit more, but our plan is to go through and sort of try to do what we did at the start of the season, way back when at the end of February, early March, where we're taking things and tidbits that we noticed from the weekend's action, going in-depth on some things, touching on other things, answering some questions on a weekly basis. All right, and the name of the podcast, again, just for anyone who hasn't subscribed, is MLS Assist, the best-named podcast in the entire world, in my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) So I told people you were coming on, and I said, please send us questions uh, that, you know, Joe is maybe better qualified to answer than, than Taylor or I am. Um, and we've got six questions that I've selected here. Um, are you ready, Joe? I'm ready, Daryl. Let's do this. Okay. First question comes from Richard Rolson. Richard wants to know, from what you saw in the MLS's back tournament, what are your thoughts on young American players who showed well in the tournament? And, and there's actually a longer version of this question. Richard was asking, essentially, which of these players could we add to the national team pool in terms of depth? So, yeah, we, I guess, so essentially, which players impressed you, Joe? Yeah, I mean, number one for me is Toronto FC's Ayo Akinola, who is not entirely... Well, I guess the United States national team is not his only option. Yes. Right? He has other choices. And I think he's an appealing player for a number of reasons. First, because of you know the United States' lack of depth at the number nine spot. And Jeremy Abobas, he's another guy from this tournament that could go into that category. Jesus Ferreira, another MLS guy, didn't play with FC Dallas in this tournament because Dallas didn't play in this tournament. But yep. American Firmino. Yeah, American Firmino. They're eligible eligible bachelors for the number nine spot for the United <laughs> States national team. So Ayoakanola scored a lot of goals. He scored five goals in the group stage of this tournament, and it was really good with his movement behind the back line, starting dropping in a little bit, then getting deep, kind of what we needed to see more of in Manchester City in the game we just talked about. Mm-hmm. He's very good at finding the space in beyond, getting the ball, taking a quick touch or two, shouldering somebody, and then finishing. So he's a guy who was really appealing to me in this tournament. So if we had a U.S. national team game tomorrow, and get ready, Joe, because I'm about to put you on the spot, and the two options to play center forward like due to suspensions or injuries or whatever are, say, Jassy Zardes or Ayo Akinola, who are you going with? Jassy Zardes. More experienced? Still. Yeah. It's still he's, he still does things very, very well. He moves well. He has good speed to get him behind. Probably better speed than Ayo Akinola does to get him behind. And yeah, he's played... In those games before, he knows the players, he knows his teammates a little bit better. So for all of those reasons, Zardes is my pick. And how is Akinola at the... The thing that I really like about Jesus Ferreira is the, you know, coming deep and connecting play, like doing a bit of a number 10 job, which I think is part of the role when you play for Berhalter, right? You, you're supposed to run in behind, but you're also supposed to come deep, pull your defenders out, and then connect play, and that space can be exploited, right? I think we both agree that that's one of the patterns of play. Um, Definitely. Playing for Berhalter. How good is Akinola at that? He's still developing in that way. If you think about Josie Altidore, because he's another guy who does that almost half number 10 yes, job he can do whenever both, he right? plays a number nine. Yeah. Altidore for Toronto and for Greg Vanny, when those two guys play just a few minutes together, Altidore is the guy who drops in. Akinola is the guy who runs behind. Yes. So we haven't seen Akinola do a ton of that because even it's Pozuelo who will drop in and get on the ball in the central space. So maybe it's not that he can't do it, but more just that he hasn't been asked to do it from Greg Vanny. I've also seen that Behalter was asked about um, Akinola. I don't know if you're familiar with this or not, but he essentially said, you know, he's part of our program. He's played for the U17s. He was going to go to the U20 World Cup, and I think um, injury stopped him going. Um, so he's part of the program. And he, I think he also said that probably the next step for Akinola is the under 23s, which would make sense. And luckily, we've got some very important under 23 games coming up. 
It's perfect. There's a ton of games for the men's side of the of the player pool coming up. I mean, I, not soon necessarily, but coming up in the not too distant future. Get Akinola some minutes if yeah. he is interested in doing that and see how he fits with the rest of that age group. Um, so you also you mentioned a few other players. Well, you mentioned uh, Jeremy Abobasi. I I am I was also impressed with Abobasi. I think his connective play is maybe a little better than Akinola's. I'm not sure who I'd choose between the two of them. So I'd be interested to hear what you have to say there. It probably depends on what you want in that number nine in any given moment. Obobese is more in the Altador mold, more in the classic Burhalter number nine mold yeah. from you know the year and change we've seen from Burhalter in charge of the national team. But they're different players. Obobese also played quite well in this tournament. He scored goals. He scored goals with different parts of his anatomy, left foot, right foot, <laughs> headers. Yes. He can jump. He can get up there as that number nine and be an outlet for crosses in the box, which is not something that I would necessarily advocate for as an attacking strategy, but... That's not as important to answering this question. <laughs> Obobasi, I think, is another guy who's in on the depth chart. He might not be top three on the depth chart, or top four even for me, I don't think. But he's on there, and you need that. You need depth options in these spots, especially because the, the pool is going to have to split to cover all these games coming up. Obobasi, I remember being really unlucky in that he started Bearhalter's first ever game. Yeah. Um, I can't remember if it's against Costa Rica or Panama. I want to say I talked to you about it as well um, afterwards. Uh, didn't he cut his head open quite early in the game and have to come out? He did. He started at left wing against Panama. Or, or I mean, it was a weird shape from Berhalter. Not a weird shape, but it was a different shape than what we expected. He started out wide on the left of the 4-3-3, you know, yeah. right side, Nick Lima coming inside. And then, yeah, he cut his head open and I think got bandaged back up and went back out there, but didn't do a whole lot from a wide space in that game, which I think is because he's not a winger. I think he's a number nine. Yeah. But I think it's just that he's like a smart enough and versatile enough player that he could essentially do the wide job that Berhalter wanted in January 2019, right? Yeah, yeah, um, I'm with you. So you haven't mentioned Brandon Aronson, but I do know that on MS Assist, you, you and Jordan talked about him quite a lot. And I know he caught a lot of people's attention during this tournament. He already is definitely part of the men's national team pool, right? Berhalter's talked about him a lot, has played him. Um, what are your thoughts on Aronson's tournament overall? This is the Philadelphia Union attacking midfielder, if, for those who aren't familiar. Aronson does some things really well and some things he's still very much learning how to do. So I'm going to start with that part. Yeah. John Muller of American Soccer Analysis. I talked about him. I talked with him on the MLS Assist podcast um, that we've talked about a little bit already. He, he writes for American Soccer Analysis and puts out a lot of really great analysis videos on Twitter. And he, he put together a two minute or so montage of Aronson struggling to find space as a number 10. Oh, that's the quite... reverse of what American soccer fans usually do, right? I, um, I'm an appreciator of the work of John Muller as well. I subscribe to his newsletter, for example. It's great. It's so good. But I think like the hype videos are important and exciting and often are really good at showcasing what players do well. But a video showcasing what players don't do so well, I think is just as important in terms of being informed about where we are as a soccer nation and where players are in their career. Sorry, I, I interjected, but I just felt like it was really important to note why I think these things are important. No, it is because we, as a, as a supporting base of American players and myself included in that do overhype players and do just sort of tend to view them more favorably than maybe they, they've yeah. earned. We just want some Aronson, good news. Exactly. We want that. <laughs> we cling to that so much. And Aronson does good things. And I'll talk about those in just a second, but he can't quite figure out right now for the union. And this is partially because the union don't really play in such a way that would encourage him to do this. But even setting that aside, he doesn't always move into space. He's too late to react. He's too late to get out behind, out from behind an opposing defender to find a pocket of space where he can receive the ball. 
And so right now that's a very much that's very much a developing part of his game. What he does do really, really well though is when he is on the ball, he can drive forward, he can beat you on the dribble, or he can play a well-weighted through ball into the box. He did that a number of different times in the MLS's back tournament. That's such an appealing part of his game. So if he could couple those things together and figure out how to move and how to see space and get into that space so that he can get on the ball, he's going to be a very dangerous midfielder. So I know on MLS Assist, you made the argument that because of this slight deficiency or this thing that uh, Brendan Aronson is learning in terms of trying to find space so he can receive the ball, you think maybe playing number 10 is not the best role for him. That, I believe that's what you said, right? This is a podcast from yeah, maybe a week no, that or is, two that's, ago. You're, you're spot on. Um, but I wanted to f- like almost follow up on that and clarify that. Do you mean just in the Philadelphia system? Or do you, are you saying in general right now in his career? I think in general right now. I don't think you want your number 10 struggling to find space, right? You want your number 10 in space and finding yeah. and drawing defenders out of position Aronson isn't doing that right now. And maybe that is, again, maybe that's just because of how Jim Curtin has the team playing mostly in transition. But when they had to have the ball higher up the field against a compact defense, Aronson struggles to find those gaps. So my thought process is you put him as a number eight, you allow him to face forward and have more chances to get on the ball deeper on the field. Then he can drive into space, play make a little bit more in ways that maybe he wouldn't be able to do as a number 10 trying to find the game. Would he still have the opportunity to receive the ball and take outrageous first touches that are also a turn so he can leave people in his dust? That's what I <laughs> want to see Brendan Aronson doing. He can do that anywhere, Daryl. Anywhere. He sure can. Are, are you with me that that is a weirdly elite skill? Like that's um, like a Tiago Alcantara type skill that I keep yeah. seeing, at least in the Brendan Aronson highlight videos and, you know, sometimes when I watch him play live. I mean, he still hasn't even played that many minutes for the Union, so the highlight videos often have a lot of his actions. So I think that's a skill that he's very good at, and he's so dangerous just when he gets a touch, even just one touch on the ball. He's very good a lot of the time. So yeah, I'm with you on that. And he can still do that as a number eight. So we've talked uh, Akinola, we've talked Jeremy Obobese, we've talked Brendan Aronson. Is there anyone, I mean, I'm sure there were lots and we could probably probably have done a whole show about this, right? Uh, Is there anyone else that like really warrants um, a big, big, unmissable mention? I want to just shout out James Sands, mostly so that mm. we can get him to the point where he's no longer the underrated uh, and the guy who's left out yes. of the conversations like these, of conversations like these. <laughs> he's not great with the ball. He's not adventurous with the ball. He doesn't really break lines with the ball. But defensively, he's a, he's a menace. The way that he counterpresses and bodies opposing number 10s, either when he's playing as a center back or as a central defensive midfielder, a single pivot, double pivot, doesn't matter. His ability to step in, pressure, win the ball, stick with a man are all so good. And he's a real defensive asset for NYCFC. What? So I'd heard rumors that he was, or rumors that he did have a sort of, not trial, or at least a visit, let's say a visit um, to Fortuna Dusseldorf um, over the winter to, you know, go and play with their squad. Do you see a European move in the very near future for James Sands? Or are you happy with him sort of developing in Major League Soccer for now? Maybe more important than what I think, Ronnie Dyla, NYCFC manager, thinks that that's going to happen soon. Mm. The way that James Sands is playing, Dyla believes, from what I've read of him and the quotes that he's put out there into the world, it seems like Dyla is very aware of the fact that Sands isn't long for Major League Soccer. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's time for him to go, move on, play. He's proven that he can defend, at least his possession work is still a work in progress. He can defend at a Major League Soccer level. Let's maybe see that in the Bundesliga. But at least he got to play for NYCFC, right? He seems like the rare hyped youth player 
from NYCFC's academy that actually played for the NYCFC team before me. Yeah. Because guys like Gio Reyna, like academy and then Dortmund. Um, the other guy, Joe Scali, um, academy, then Bruce Munch and Gladbach. A lot of these players that I would have loved to just have a little dabble in Major League Soccer at least um, seem to skip it altogether. So I've, I like the James Sands career trajectory if he goes to Europe fairly soon. That'd be nice. And, and Scali's still actually on NYCFC. He just doesn't play. He doesn't get minutes. Mm. And he's, he's preparing to go to Mönchengladbach. I think it's 2021. But NYCFC have this thing where they're not really playing a lot of their products, their youth products, because they have a lot of depth in Major League Soccer. And so yeah. Sands has kind of been the one guy to break through into the first team before getting you know moved on to Europe. And I guess in the Scali situation, it's kind of like, well, I mean... The move's already happened. There's no benefit to us to uh, for playing him, right? We're not going to de- if he's not like going to make an immediate contribution to our first team. Then I guess we just let him hang out in New York for a bit, and then we send him on his way. Yeah, and that's kind of what we're seeing, honestly. Yeah. Um, okay. Next question is from Jared S. Jared literally says for Joe, which I asked people to do to make sure um, that it was for you. Which coach surprised you the most at the MLS is back tournament? And then his second question from Jared for both of us. Do you want to see the tournament return? So let's start with the question just for you, Joe. Which coach surprised you the most at MLS's back? For me, it's it's Oscar Pereja, head mm. coach of Orlando City. Not, And I, maybe that's not the right answer to this question, if there is a right answer, because we kind of knew Oscar Pereja was a good Major League Soccer coach. He showed it with Dallas in the past and had some really great teams. True, with but there are a lot of good coaches who have then coached Orlando City and it hasn't gone well. Like Jason and that's, that's exactly right, Daryl. <laughs> I think just the fact that he was able to turn Orlando around over, not overnight, but over the course of this tournament. Because at the start of the season, the first two games from Orlando, they were bad. They were not a good soccer team. And I, it's another lesson here that you know maybe we don't overreact or we shouldn't overreact to two games. Yeah. But the fact that Oscar Pereja came in, he used the time that all soccer was sitting out because of the global pandemic, and he turned Orlando City team... Orlando City into a team that can play with the ball, possess, move the ball around, and create actual scoring chances, which is so hard to do anywhere. Even harder to do with Orlando City, who have not been a good soccer team pretty much ever in their existence. And I'm not <laughs> just trying to take shots. No, it's, that's, it's, that's the, the, it's case. the record, right? That's the, the numbers bear that out. And the fact that he could turn them around into a team that made the final of this tournament and played some of the best soccer, if not the best, most visually appealing soccer in the entire league down in Orlando for this tournament. That's so impressive to me. One, This is a little bit off topic, but one of the things that really struck me during MLS's back is that a lot of teams, and Orlando are a huge, huge example because it's one of the times when I noticed, um, because you can hear the coaches talking and you can hear the players talking, um, it really struck me how bilingual Orlando is and how bilingual Oscar Pereja is, right? He's, I heard him communicating to his players like two sentences in Spanish, two sentences in English. And I don't know if it's, he's like communicating specific things that affects like primarily Spanish speaking players in Spanish and then specific things that affect primarily English speaking players in English. But it's almost like there's just, it's almost like there's just one combined language and you just pick the bits that you need um, to communicate to your team. Daryl, we can't even decipher 2DNA. And Oscar Pereja <laughs> is out here coaching in two languages. Yes. I mean, come on. That's ridiculous. But I'm, I'm just impressed by the non-uniformity of it, right? Because I think in a lot of people's heads, and especially if you're unilingual like I am, you think, all right, you're either going to go with this language or this language. Um, so just to hear it being like, like picking and choosing as you go, as needed, I think is like a fascinating thing. 
It is fascinating that and seeing him kneel down over the tactics board yes. at different breaks and at water breaks to prep those conversations for his team. Yeah. That was a cool part of the broadcast and just the format of this tournament is having those little breaks in the halves. You get lots of little insight. You get different observations that we can see and hear Preha coaching in two languages and getting down and moving the, the little magnets around on the board. <laughs> I, I love that stuff. I've heard a lot of people complain that the um, the water breaks give teams an unnecessary like it's meant to be for hydration but it's ended up being for coaches to uh give tactical instructions and people have complained about that to me that seems like i love it i think it's a massive massive positive um because i i think there are times when it's it's actually good for the game like good for the uh the quality of the game you're watching for a coach to be able to get fresh tactical instructions or tweaks across yeah, I mean, I'd rather watch Orlando City. I mean, if they're struggling to get in behind a defense, I'd rather watch Oscar Pereja make the change over a two-minute break and then come out and have them play much better, more energized, effective soccer. I yeah. like watching cool stuff happen on the field. So I'm I'm all for the little breaks. All right, me too. All right, so for the, uh, the second part of Jared's question, for both, do you want to see the tournament return? I'm not opposed to it, but I'm also not sure I see a reason for it. To return, I mean, mm. it didn't it didn't boost the TV ratings at all, which was kind of the the goal or one of the hopes of coming back as early yeah. as Major League Soccer did. So it kind of didn't achieve its main market objective, marketing objective. And I think maybe if you're going to put a bunch of resources into a soccer tournament in the U.S., it should probably be the Open Cup. Mm-hmm. But that's me. I don't know, Daryl. What do you got? I think if you're going to have a regular season. It, it seems like you you would have to reduce the regular season to have this MLS's back tournament. Yeah. But maybe that might be a good thing because there's an argument that the MLS regular season goes on a little too long and it gets it's a bit saggy in the middle. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. the best argument for it would be to tighten up the regular season, have fewer number of games, and then you'll have more more attention because it's like the, the action and the elimination and, and the drama is more immediate in the MLS's back tournament. So I think that's the only... Um, the only good argument for it. The, if we're thinking big and we're thinking about the way MLS and Soccer United marketing has been going in recent years, maybe the best argument is to make it an MLS and Liga MX tournament and combine it and have it be this mega event because then the TV ratings would come in, I think. They would definitely come in. That could, be, that could be the way to do it, honestly. I think that's a really good idea, combining those, allowing some to continue on this path that we we seem to be watching them go along where the leagues are getting closer and closer together, yeah. getting buddier and buddier, have the tournament environment, which was fun. I, I think I was a little, I mean, I was justifiably negative, I think, in my first response because I'm not sure we need it. But the tournament was fun. Seeing all these games together was fun. Yeah. Having the, the MLS World Cup essentially is what it was. <laughs> yeah. No Bastion Schweinsteiger, you know, jokes intended there. <laughs> Imagine um, if Schweinsteiger had still played and Chicago Fire had won it. That, that, journal, imagine if that, that journalist guy, would have been right. I was going to say, imagine if that journalist was there. I hope, I hope he's, <laughs> he's still involved. But, I mean, it's fun. Having those, those little international vibes in a, a domestic tournament is fun. Yeah. But maybe if there's not a specific marketing boost, which would come in with the Liga MX semi-merger and this tournament example, I, I think if that doesn't exist and if there's not that boost, maybe it, it just doesn't need to be. And I'm really aware that it's a logistical problem to have to have Liga MX and MLS teams. You'd have to reorganize both leagues' schedules. But if they, I mean, if they want to do it, then uh, it's anything's doable, right? Because both leagues yeah. have proven over the last few years that they're very willing to <laughs> to tweak their rules. 
Yep. <laughs> um, all right, one final ad break, uh, Mr. Lowry. Today's show is sponsored by Artifact. Um, Artifact uh, makes personal podcasts, personal audio recordings just for you. So you can commission Artifact to, for example, get the memories uh, from your grandparents. I could get that I could get my grandma to talk about that time she scored that Raheem Sterling goal. And we could have the uh, the whole story produced by Artifact. And it's really well produced. They have professional interviewers and they create um, a, an almost public radio sounding uh, product. And then you have this memory. It's, it really is. An, the idea is sort of podcasts, but not to go out in the world and try and get as many listeners as possible. It's a podcast just for you and your friends and family to share a memory. It's an Artifact. You can hear um, a, the, a Total Soccer Show artifact, which we commissioned. Uh, we were interviewed about how we started the Total Soccer Show, how we grew the Total Soccer Show, like the 10-year history of it. Um, it was the, to give you an example of how it works, um, it was George Qureshi who interviewed us. He asked us a lot of questions, but then he very diligently edited it down into like the, the best 20 minutes of, of that question and answers session. And he did a really good job of finding the very best moments and telling the story in the best possible way. Uh, you can hear that story at heyartifact.com slash TSS, all lowercase. And if you'd like to make your own artifact to get started, you go to heyartifact.com, use the code TSS, all uppercase, TSS, all uppercase, $40 off your first artifact. Thank you to Artifact for sponsoring today's show. Are you still there, Joe? I am absolutely still here, Daryl. <laughs> I was just hoping I didn't lose you. Um, next question, Joe, comes from Andy Garcia. I'm assuming not that one, but Andy Garcia. Which are you familiar with, Andy Garcia, the actor? I'm not familiar with him. Oh, okay. Garcia. Yeah, he hasn't. Do you know what? He hasn't done much in a while, so that's no surprise. Maybe this is what he's doing. He's just sending questions into the <laughs> show. He's too busy acting. He was in The Godfather Part Three. Um, oh, there you go. Um, and he was the villain in one of the Ocean's Eleven movies as well. Um, oh. What? What changes should MLS make with their DP and salary cap rules to improve their league? Oh, if anyone heard allocation disorder this week, um, Paul Tenorio and Sam Stachel basically just say, let them spend more money. Yeah, and I went back and read Sam's piece recently that he wrote for The Athletic after Matuidi signed for Inter Miami on a TAM deal. And I agree with Paul and Sam. Their thesis of allowing teams who wanted to spend money to spend money and not hold the league back from a quality perspective just at the expense of of wanting to manufacture parity, I'm not sure that's necessary at this stage of the league's yep. development. It was necessary years ago. It was yep. absolutely necessary at that time. Now, not so much. I would even argue that the goal isn't really to manufacture parity. I think the parity is um, a byproduct of just having spending controls because there are so mm -hmm. many owners who don't want to spend money and then the league can kind of say it's about keeping parity, but really it's about keeping costs down. Yeah, it's about not spending money. You're yeah. right. I was painting too rosy of a picture. No, there. I mean, no, but I mean, I, th I always say the same thing as well. I think we've been almost taught as American soccer fans that that's what it's all about. <laughs> but that's not really what it's all about, right? It's about the cheapy owners not wanting to spend money and therefore limiting the owners like Arthur Blank, who would be very willing to spend the money. So my understanding of the situation is that it essentially just needs a enough owners to want to spend money for them to win the vote because they're all you know on the mls board i guess you would call it um to to have enough sway that they can change the rules right it's that because it's the it's essentially the owners that get to decide what the spending rules are so you just need a sort of a critical mass and if 
if Major League Soccer wants to be what Don Garber keeps saying that they want the league to be, as in they want to be one of the top leagues in the world by a date that I think may have already passed or a date that's coming very <laughs> quickly around the corner, this has to happen. And I do think it will happen. It just is going to take – it's going to be like pulling teeth. It's pulling teeth from these, it's pulling teeth from these owners who want – to not have to spend money, and and it's going to take time for that control to be eased up, and for owners like Arthur Blank and like you know LAFC's ownership group who are willing to part with cash to elevate their on-field product, that's going to take time. But if if MLS wants to become a top league, and I think they do, because why why wouldn't you? Yeah, this will happen. It's just at times frustrating that it's taking so long to get to that point. So you imagining just. Hey, there's no more salary cap or any rules or anything. There's just you, your money, your team. Or are you imagining something where it's the salary cap is doubled and you can have eleven DPs if you want? Like, are you imagine so? Are you imagine like um, just a boost in the like the current system, but on steroids, or just no more restrictions? It's got to be baby steps, right? Okay. I mean, if if you're an owner and they just flip the switch on you like that, I don't imagine that that would pass would pass in in the board sense of this. Yeah. So I think in the near term, certainly it's got to be incremental steps. Maybe it's a a fourth DP and a fifth DP. The salary cap is doubled. It's more allocation money. I mean, it's it's still all the same somewhat complicated mechanisms, but it's a boost in all of those things. And then another five years down the road, it's another boost. And then maybe 30 years from now or, or less than that, I don't know, it's all gone. But for now and for the immediate future, I think it's going to be those incremental boosts to the money. To the money, And I would argue that it would be good for, let's call it like league-wide narratives. If you do have a sort of um, big spenders and low spenders situation and superpower teams and like, like you know, less, less well-equipped teams. Because I, I'm thinking back to the NWSL Challenge Cup and I got really into the story of who's going to beat North Carolina Courage. Like, it's really good to have... Um, a top team that everybody wants to knock off. I think it's really interesting to see that situation because it creates drama, right? Um, it's why Leon versus Man City, there was drama today because Man City are the big spending team that's expected to win. And I would argue that we've never really had that in Major League Soccer because there is this byproduct of parity where even if you have a really good team, like you put together that Atlanta United team that won MLS Cup, because of all the spending restrictions, that team starts to fall apart the following season because, you know, like Greg Garza was too expensive to hold on to, for example. Maybe it's my American background showing and I just have a soft spot for some elements of parity. But I do think I'm a little bit more of a sucker for who's going to win this year and not, you know, the European model where we see the same, relatively speaking, we see the same teams win every year. Yeah. And so from that standpoint, I do value Major League Soccer's approach, even if it's rooted in a desire to not have to spend money. I respect the, you know, the parity that we get in a lot of American sports and how you don't always know it's going to be one of these five teams or it's 5,000 to one odds that it's going to be one of those top teams. Yeah. And I appreciate the fact that it's not always like that in American sports, but at the expense of sacrificing the potential to have really, really good soccer, I would even throw all that away to have you know owners be able to spend money yeah. on their teams if they want to. I guess the ideal thing is there'd be parity because there'd be no spending restrictions and all the owners would want to spend all the money right. all the time. That would be the best possible version, right? Then there's just money being poured into American soccer. Um, I've got one more dramatic suggestion, Joe, uh, before we move to the next question. Um, it strikes me that we originally got the designated player rule in 2007 essentially because David Beckham was available, right? And we had to create a mechanism where David Beckham could somehow fit into a Major League Soccer salary structure. 
we might be looking at a nearish term future where either one or both of Leo Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo are available. Yeah, I just wonder what that rule is going to be called, right? I mean, yeah. what are we gonna what are we gonna come up with next for one of those big names? But that but that could just be as simple as like forcing a fourth or fifth DP because suddenly this deal needs to happen now before a Premier League team gets him, and we just need to make sure that um, the LA Galaxy can can get Leo Messi on the roster without too See, much. Darryl, the, the key the key to Major League Soccer is making the the roster mechanisms as complicated as possible. And I just feel like if you're if you're not adding another maybe it's a super designated player, <laughs> if you're not adding another level to that, I mean what are we even doing at that point? Messi just might as well stay in Barcelona. It'll, it'll be like a, a designated player that's paid at least the equivalent of half a million dollars a week, right? Because <laughs> that's roughly the level Messi and Ronaldo are getting paid at. Yeah, it's a high threshold, but uh, at least Messi and Ronaldo will hit it. Yeah, they, they certainly will if they ever come here. Do you do you see that as a possibility any time in the next three years, say? Ronaldo maybe less so um, because of all of the the oh, of course, and, yeah, and likely. Okay. I mean, that's just a an an awful situation to yeah. have to deal with from a coverage perspective. Messi, though, on yeah, the but other it's hand, also his own fault. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. I just mean in terms of the the look that Major League Soccer would get oh, from see. allowing yes. Ronaldo to come and play in Major League Soccer. That's uh, not a good situation, not a situation that I want to be a part of. Yeah. But Lionel you know, Messi coming to the league and coming to a team like Miami or another ambitious club, why not, right? I mean, it seems like the, the Barcelona days are numbered at this point. Yeah, he's also two or three years younger, right? So there's probably more more gas in Messi's tank. Yeah, the window's open longer there yeah. for sure. Um, all right, let's move on then uh, to a question from Chris Jackson. I'm really interested in your answer to this question. This is the one I've been looking forward to the most. Is a Jackson Yule, Tyler Adams, Weston McKenney, three-man midfield, a balanced enough midfield, this is for US men's national team, of course, to provide stout defense in situations where the US has less possession, but also create dangerous chances when they do have the ball? What do you think, there's a lot here, right? There's yeah. two sides of it. There's the defensive side and the offensive side. Let's start defensively. Actually, let's start with the fact that I don't know. Okay. Well, let me is. let me kind of frame this for you then. With like, We'll check sure. off some things that I think we can already say for sure, right? I can say that the Tyler Adams and Weston McKenney defensive side of it, both those boxes are checked. I would also say that they're not like the most creative players, but I would say going forward, Adams and McKenney there's enough there to worry an opposition, especially if you've got like creative wingers and a striker ahead of them, right? So even though neither of them are really number 10s, I think there's enough there. Jackson Yule with his like clever passing, I think there's enough there attacking. So I think if you really wanted to boil this down, it comes down to, if we're in a situation where we need stout defence, is Jackson Yule a good enough defender or should he be replaced with another more destructive type of number six? Probably if you're playing Belgium or France or Spain or Germany, you would want Tyler Adams at that spot more so than you would want Jackson Ewell because yeah. you don't want to risk being burned when you're back defending against a team like that. Yeah. But against Honduras or against Costa Rica or Panama and, and maybe against Mexico, although we saw Weston McKinney even have some trouble tracking runners against Mexico in the mm-hmm. Gold Cup final. So that's an, an asterisk there for his defensive side of the game. But maybe at that point against uh, a CONCACAF opponent, you're fine with yeah, that trio. Yeah, because not, it's not like Jackson Yule is defensively suspect, right? It's not like he's obviously like, oh, he's the guy that you should target because he can't tackle at all. Like Jackson Yule can tackle. I've seen him do it. Um, but he just doesn't... He's not like a defensive warrior um, to the extent that Adams or McKenney are. Exactly. I think this this midfield trio, and you guys have covered this really well, Berhalter's likely shift 
more permanent shift to a 4-3-3 with three central midfielders, a six and two eights. I think those three guys are probably the best three players that fit the profiles that Berhalter is looking for. Yeah. So defensively, I think I'm I'm sold on that trio for most of the CONCACAF opponents, which is mostly who the U.S. will be playing for the next, I mean, however long until yeah. ideally a World Cup happens. Offensively, I think these guys would also do what Berhalter wants. Jackson Ewell fits the the role as the deep-lying number six who can sit between the center backs sometimes or step forward and spray passes out of that defensive midfield spot. And then Adams and McKinney are guys that can complement the fullbacks and the wide attackers. Ideally, that's going to be Christian Pulisic and and probably Gio Reyna or Jordan Morris, or, you know, whatever the, yeah. the complement to Pulisic on the other side and is. Then, I and think... then Ayo up top. Exactly. Yeah, we're not <laughs> we're not making any uh, we're not jumping to any conclusions there at all. <laughs> but I think I think those those eights, Adams and McKinney, can get forward. They can make some late arriving runs into the box. They can complement the wide attackers who are supposed to be the focal points of this team. Yeah. So yeah. So we're basically saying yes, it's perfectly good enough. Except for maybe you basically said France, Germany, Brazil, like top tier Europeans, right? Um, but to give you like a really tough example, what if we were playing Poland or maybe Switzerland, mm. a slightly better team? Do you know what I'm saying? Like you're not yeah, like a yeah. World Cup winning elite, elite, elite team, but a really like useful, quite scary European team. I I think. This is still probably the best midfield combination you could go for. I don't think Michael Bradley has the legs to do any sort of real defending against a dangerous attacking team. I think Jackson Ewell has the mobility and more of upside with his passing than Will Trapp does as that number six. Adams and McKinney are the the guys who have played in the most big games in their club career so far and who have yeah. had... Who we just haven't seen as much with the national team at this point. But, I mean, there's guys like Aronson and Pomacal who could play those spots. Dwayne Holmes... But none of the options seem as appealing to me as Weston McKinney and Tyler Adams. So I think, to me, if I'm coaching the national team and I'm playing a Switzerland or a Poland or a, a middle-tier European nation, I'm probably rolling those three guys out as my starting central midfielders. All right, and one final question on this thing, because I'm fascinated by this question. If it is that France-Germany-Brazil challenge, um, or let's say England on a good day. <laughs> um, yeah, that's fair. You did you did uh, say that maybe you would have Adams as the six just to go purely defensive, I'm assuming keep McKenney. Who's the other guy? Who would be that third, more defensive central midfielder that you would draft in when we're really up against it against an elite team? Like and, my heart, and you can't say James Sands in three years, <laughs> right? <laughs> okay, so we can't fast forward time. My heart says we all pray for Paxton Pomichol's hamstrings and we run him out there. Mm, but okay. my head says having three super young central midfielders against. You know, England, if we're using that as the example, who's a very good soccer team, is maybe not necessarily the way to go. And maybe you go for Sebastian Legette and you have him be the ounce of creativity in the midfield and have McKenney and Adams sit a little bit deeper. I see. And you hope and pray that you can contain England. So it wouldn't be about having three super defensive midfielders. It would just be more about Adams at the six. That's the big trade off. And then, I think so. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense to me. That makes sense. All right, we have two more questions. Are you good for time, Joe? I'm good for time, Okay, Darryl. Let's do this thing. Next question. Andrew Johnson specifically asks, Joe, should Greg Berhalter call up Artur de Lima now that he has U.S. citizenship? Artur is the Columbus Crew central midfielder. Probably should have got Jordan to answer this question because she wanted <laughs> even more of Artur, but I'm sure you've seen plenty. But let's start with the premise of the question. Um, I'm just taking it from Andrew's question that Artur has U.S. citizenship. Do we know if this is true or not? 
I believe from what I heard on a broadcast during the MLS's back tournament and, and things that I'd seen, you know, written online, that he is a U.S. citizen. But I, and I'm not a legal expert here, so take this all with a grain of salt. But from also what I've read about Artur, he's not quite national team eligible yet, and I don't know why that is because I don't understand what the distinction is there. Like why why is there a gap between becoming a citizen and being eligible for the national team? But I think, that I think said, actually there's like there's US and INS, there's immigration paperwork and there's, oh, right. and there's FIFA paperwork. And I think they're just two separate two separate processes, right? Um, especially if you've just acquired a citizenship. That's my guess. No, and I think that's that's better than any theory that I have. So I, I have seen though, from what I've read, again, that he should be eligible for Berhalter to call him up potentially in a couple of years. And if that were to happen, I'm all for it. I think he would be a great depth option for the national team in midfield. What does he bring to the table? So he's he's versatile in his positioning. He can play as a six or an eight. He has a really good ability on the ball. He can turn out of pressure. He had a play, I think it was against Minnesota United in the MLS SPAC tournament. I tweeted it out because it was my favorite play from that game, even though the crew lost, where he just he has a guy on his back and he turns out of pressure and he strides forward. He can do that all the time. He's a little Nagby-ish in that way. Mm. Um, Nagby for the crew ends up sitting a little deeper and Artur pushes a little higher. But I think for the way that Berhalter wants to play, if we're in that 4-3-3 template by whenever Artur is eligible to be called up, Artur might be more of a number six option with some diagonal passing, with calm and a good demeanor to be on the ball under pressure. But there's no reason why he couldn't be an option in that midfield going forward. If we're talking about the previous question with the the you know balance between defending and attacking, would Artur be maybe a guy that you could add to the three to to provide the the extra bit of defensive bite and plenty on the ball? Yeah, I think so. Mm. I'm not sure. I'd have to have Artur and Jackson Yule do a foot race <laughs> because in my head, Artur is a little is a little quicker. But I don't know if that's just because I have Yule in my head as this will trap Michael Bradley 3.0 kind yeah, of guy. Same, right? But, we, but that's we not fair to, to him. I don't think. Yeah, I think we tend to sort of cast us not cast aspersions, but like some of the sins of Bradley and Trap we cast on exactly. Jackson Yule as well. Because uh, Berhalter has really specifically talked about how. If he goes with this new sort of setup like we saw against Costa Rica in February 1st, it would be a more mobile midfield, right? That would be what the uh, a premium is on being mobile and being able to win balls. Um, I don't think that if Jackson Yule was slow that he'd be in that conversation. No, I don't think so. I think he has significantly higher mobility than the, the other two guys that we consistently mention in that conversation. Artur, I, I'm not sure I'd have to pay attention because I'm so much entranced by his ability on the ball yeah. that I get distracted when he's not on the ball. But yeah, he's in that conversation for sure. He could be, he's a really good player and he could be impactful for the national team whenever he's able to do that. So unfortunately, the MLS All-Star game and the Skills Challenge was cancelled this year, but maybe we could just have the Artur versus Jackson Ewell foot race <laughs> just as a one-off event. Yeah, just at some sort of track out in, in halfway between Columbus and San Jose. Yeah. They just drive there and meet up and race and then drive home. Pay-per-view on Flow Sports. Um, <laughs> final <laughs> question. <laughs> oh, they, they get, they're, they're getting desperate. <laughs> final question of the day comes from Connor Beach. Connor says, for Mr. Joe Lowry, would a minimum domestic player requirement be good for the growth of Major League Soccer? And I want to add a bit of detail to this. There is a minimum domestic player requirement on the roster, right? I is there? 
As I in, you like have I should to, know that. There, definitely, I know it's it's become important when certain players acquire a green card or permanent residency. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, you're 100 percent right. You only have a certain number of international spots. I was stuck in the yeah. young player mentality here, but yes, yeah, you're spot on, Daryl. And so, yeah, I just wanted to clarify that because I'm pretty confident that the spirit of what Connor is asking is would a like a US and then I guess Canada if you're Toronto and other Canadian clubs. Would a like you must start this many US players requirement be good for the growth of MLS? That's how I'm interpreting this question. This is the type of thing where Taylor and I would debate what was being asked here, and it would take 20 minutes off air to figure out. I'm hoping you'll just go with <laughs> me on this. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. One other element, I guess, to play the Taylor role here for a second is it could also be talking about the minutes requirement, right? Like Liga mm. MX and the Canadian Premier League both do that, where they have like Maybe it's a thousand minutes that they have to have U21 or U23 domestic players hit for every single team. Otherwise, there's points deducted. Wow. But it's the same idea, right? I think it's, it's, we're kind of splitting hairs here because the motivation would be the same behind both of those things. Yeah. So do you think it would be good? And it's interesting he asks, he asks in terms of for the growth of MLS, not for the good of the U.S. men's national team. So what do you think? Yeah. So I guess the theory here would be that if Major League Soccer had some sort of minimum domestic player requirement – that gets more Americans on the field more often. And that would allow those players to be transferred on after they've gotten minutes, if they're good players, to go and, and represent the league like we've seen that Tyler Adams do and Alfonso Davies do and a little bit less of Miguel on their own with Newcastle. But still, like we've seen those guys do, I guess the theory is that you get more players moving out of Major League Soccer and that helps increase Major League Soccer's global standing and that gets more people interested in Major League Soccer and then you've got the perfect circle. I think the logic there is valid. I, I think that that idea of getting more young Americans and, and I guess Canadians on the field and selling them on, if that's the intention of some of these teams, is a is a good thing, right? I mean, it sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? It does, yeah. I think that's true. I think the profile of former MLS players who go abroad and raise their prof- profile and thereby raise the profile of the league, I think I think that does work. You call it like a circle, right? I think that, yes, yeah, the circle of life basically <laughs> um, would work out. I've been thinking in my head that is, is there also an idea of, I think there are a lot of people who are US men's national team fans, but they're also Euro snobs, right? Like they think MLS is trash. All the players have got to go to Europe because that's where it's at. But maybe they would watch more MLS if more US national team players were coming up through it. And I, I actually think that it wouldn't work for those people. And I think for people like you and I, we... We watch already, and I watch especially to watch young up-and-coming men's national team players. And for me, right now, it's happening enough anyway that it doesn't need um, it doesn't need the league to be forced to do it, right? Paxton, Pomacal, Jesus Ferreira, they're getting minutes. I don't need anyone to force FC Dallas to do it. Yeah, and there's also an argument for just letting the teams that actually want to develop players do that and not yeah. have the rest of the league who doesn't want yeah. to do that. Like, let Dallas, let RSL... Let, I mean, I'm not going to name all the teams here, so... Let the teams that want to do that do it and let the teams that don't want to do it not, right? That's that's probably yeah. also fine. That would be ideal from a youth perspective if Major League Soccer took away the homegrown territories thing and just really lets the teams that are committed to youth development do youth development and then says, okay, the rest of the league, you don't have to do that. So I guess I could see there being value on both sides, one extreme or the other. Um, but I'm a little bit afraid that we're going to keep seeing MLS operate in that nebulous middle area. Yeah. And and I guess that's fine, right? Because then you still have the teams who are good at, you know, producing young players yeah. doing that. It just is not maybe as effective as it could be. Yeah, I think you're right that 
yeah, you call it the nebulous middle um, area. I see what Major League Soccer has done historically is to create lots of incentives. Like, for example, um, having homegrown players not count against the salary cap. Um, and there's you know, the youth transfer money that was added this past year. Like, And all of that is an incentive to have young domestic players but you're not punished if you don't do it. It's like it's all carrot and no stick, basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, well, final question on this then. If you were going to do it in some way, how would you do it? Would you do it like you must have this many minutes or we did up points? Would you have it as there must be this many players start every game? Like, what's What would be your favorite way of implementing this if we were going to implement it for the growth of MLS? Let's do- Let's do both, just because I want to be difficult. Let's have if, – if I'm making this rule and if I'm putting on my Don Garber face mask, um, Mission <laughs> Impossible style, I'm going to say that you have at least two Americans in the starting lineup – domestic players, sorry, Canada – two domestic players in the starting lineup. And then you also need a minimum requirement of 1,500 minutes, which should be – oh, that's, that's way too few then, actually. You can't do that. You need a minutes requirement and a minimum number of players in the lineup that represent the nationality of your club. Yeah. Otherwise, you get deducted six points at the end of the season. <laughs> two is very conservative. Why did you choose two? I'm not, I'm well, not saying think, it's wrong, but I'm interested in why you choose it. No, I, I think it is wrong because um, I was still stuck in like U21 players. Mm. Um, and if you have just two Americans under the age of 21, that's a pretty significant investment. Mm, so I would okay. like to amend. Thank you, Daryl, for flipping that back to me. I'd like to amend it and say the minutes requirement is for, for U21 domestic players and the starting players is just for any age. Um, so that gives the youth players a little bit of edge, and then maybe you can bump up the number of domestic starting players to, like, five. I see. Okay, and actually five is a number I would quibble with, only because I know there's a history in Turkey of them having that kind of uh, stipulation. And apparently they cancelled it after a few years uh, because a lot of players just got kind of, Domestic players got kind of lazy about it because they were... A lot of coaches felt that young Turkish players felt they were just guaranteed a spot in the starting eleven mm. because they had this quota requirement and they didn't have to do anything to earn their spot because the league was forcing them to play, which is a really interesting um, knock-on effect, right? And that's that's maybe why we don't see a lot of leagues do that because that's a yeah. great point and it maybe just tears this whole idea to pieces, which is not a bad thing. That just means that maybe there's a reason why we don't see a lot of developing leagues around the world try that is because complacency can set in pretty quickly. But I think the argument for a lower number of uh, quota players that you have to start creates competition, right? Because, for example, sure. if it's only two, then you're going to have more than two Americans hanging around, right? So there aren't just two Americans being like, well, I'm good, no worries. There'll be <laughs> like 10 Americans after those two spots. Yeah, I think it would, it would be fun from a U.S. national team, U.S. men's national team standpoint watching Major League Soccer, I guess, would become a little bit more fun if you were invested in Major League Soccer in the first place. Like you said, it might not draw in the European-focused fans of the national team. Yeah, but it could it could do things for the American player, and it could it could make watching the league even a little bit more fun. Would you agree that right now, though, we're kind of okay in that lots of Americans are coming through, and there's no there's no desperate need to to force clubs to give more minutes to Americans. It's better now than it's ever been, to my knowledge, between yeah. USL and a lot of clubs investing in either having a second team, although there's, I've had arguments with people in the past as to whether USL truly is valuable in that and if the level is high enough to do that. But that's, that's maybe a different show, actually. That'd be interesting. Mm. But I think, I think the league is doing better now than it's ever done before at the academy side of things, at bringing up players and having a pathway to the first team and then getting them out of the league. It's developing, but 
a lot of progress has been made on that front. I mean, I'm with you. I think USL is providing the crucial bridge, right, between the academies where you're just playing against other kids, no matter how talented, and then USL where you get to essentially get roughed up by some some not particularly <laughs> well-paid but professional players. Um, you, it's, a, it's a seasoning thing, right? I've seen Tyler Adams play in the USL for um, half a year or so. I'm sure it helped like before he made the big move to the Red Bulls first team. Yeah, getting actual game minutes seems like a valuable thing to me. Yeah. So I, I think I'm with you on that, Daryl. Okay, uh, Joe, one more time. Uh, I want to make sure that people know that if they want the best MLS tactics coverage around, they should listen to MLS Assist. You can find it on all good podcast players. Um, and you said you'll soon be reviewing uh, MLS games when they're, when they're back, uh, back on the schedule, right? We're taking our elongated exhale from MLS at the moment. But yes, we'll be back very soon covering games pretty much as soon as they happen. Well-deserved. Well-deserved exhale, I'm going to say, as well. I'll close by saying, Joe Lowry, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Daryl, thank you for having me. Listeners, thank you for listening. And Total Soccer Show will be back next week. Hello and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man who would have finished that Raheem Sterling chance. His name is Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. <laughs> Hello, Daler. Oh my gosh, can we run that again? Oh no, you call me Taylor. <laughs> yes, no problem, no problem. <laughs> I That's a horrible habit. Like combining you guys, Daryl and Taylor, into a bromance, just like Daryl. Yes. We that actually, happens a good bit. We have a friend of ours. He plays for our team, but we also like, you know, hang out with him and get coffee yeah. and stuff. And he listens to the show who <laughs> keeps doing the same thing. And he does two different versions of it as well. And That's, he always kicks himself when he does it. And then, but he, yeah. Can't. yeah. <laughs> I should have just rolled with it, but I appreciate you, your, uh, your willingness to run that back. No problem. I'll take, we'll take it as a compliment. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs>